Hello, my name is Chandler O'Leary. And my name is Johnny Hatch. Welcome to Bedside Business, a student-run podcast where we talk with physicians about how they use business principles to improve their lives and the lives of their patients. We believe that business is a tool physicians can use to help their patients fight against burnout and make the world a better place. We aim to explore all these topics and more. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Sandy Weitz. Dr. Weitz is a board-certified anesthesiologist and pain management specialist. During her career, Dr. Weitz opened a pain management clinic, then expanded to include several other specialties and even an ambulatory surgical center. Dr. Weitz now trains physicians in her private medical practice academy to open their own practices and succeed as both business owners and physicians. In this episode, we define many different business terms, including revenue, expenses, overhead, charges, etc., and define why these are important for physicians and how we can use them to best serve our patients in our community. Well, Dr. Weiss, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. First off, we would love to hear a little bit about your journey. Um, you finished your training in San Francisco, then you stayed on as an attending at UCSF, and then you had your dream job. You were running the pain service as an anesthesiologist, but then all of a sudden you packed up and left and moved across the country to Louisiana. Why did you do that? What was the change? Why did you leave your dream job? Okay, so I think it's um, probably not fair to say that it was all of a sudden. Basically, I had been on faculty for five years. We took a pay cut every year that I was working at the University of California, San Francisco. So it was my dream job in that I love teaching residents and fellows. I love the academic spirit of it. But financially, it made no sense. And I had three little kids. My husband is also a physician. He's a urologist. We lived in the middle between UCSF and San Jose. So if anybody out there knows where that is, it's right in the heart of Silicon Valley where the cost of living was out of control. And so basically I went to my chairman and said, look, uh, this is ridiculous. I need to make more money. And he said, I can give you more non-clinical time, but I can't give you any more money because it's according to the University of California pay scale. And I said, okay, then I have to leave. And that's why it was purely an economic decision. I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, you know, you have, you have expenses and you have to cover those expenses. And if you can't cover those expenses, I mean, to, to be in the Bay area as a two physician family and be broke, and not because we were living high on the hog, but because it was just that expensive and we had $300,000 in student loans, we decided, okay, something needs to change. So I picked up, I moved to Baton Rouge. I joined an anesthesia group who told me that they wanted a pain specialist. In truth be told, they had zero clue what that actually was. They had an idea of it, but they thought that I was going to do procedures in the back of a recovery room. Even though I had explained to them that at UC, I had run a multimodality program. Okay. So I worked for them for a year and a half and kept saying to them, look, th this is not working. Okay. I need a clinic. I need this. I need that. They were like, no, we're not doing that. I said, okay, fine. I'll go out on my own. Went to the hospital nearby and said, you guys want a multidisciplinary pain program. 
I can build that. I'm already in the process of building that. And they say, great, we'll give you a uh, space at fair market value and you can rent this space and you can grow this program for us. And then basically after about, oh, another year, maybe 18 months, I went to the hospital and I said, look, there are not enough hours in the day. I've grown this thing to be humongous. I've hired a mid-level, a nurse practitioner. I need to hire more docs. Can we form a joint venture where you can give me support for bringing on additional physicians? Look, you know, I'm doing procedures at your place. You're getting the facility fee. I'm sending to your physical therapy. You get that money. I send imaging studies to your center. I want a piece of that. No. We're the thousand bed hospital in town and we don't need to do that with you. And I said, okay, but if I leave, you have nothing. And they were like, we'll just get somebody else. And I said, okay, fine. And I left. Um, I can stop here or <laughs> I can It's a fun going. story. I, I want to hear how it ends. So, so when you say left, did you leave town? Did you send your services elsewhere? What did you do? I realized that the hospital was not going to help us. And my husband and I went out, we found a two and a half acre lot with highway frontage, bought the lot, built a 25,000 square foot building. The original intent was that I was going to put my clinic in an ambulatory surgery center for me to do procedures on the first floor. And then the second floor would be lease space. We were in the building, not even four months. By this point, I had hired another physician and another mid-level. So there were two docs, two mid-levels, and I was on, on my way to hiring another physician and a psychologist when I said to my husband, okay, we're in this building for four months and I'm out of space. So we need to convert the upstairs into a clinic, which became a 23 exam room clinic with um, space for massage and conference room and all sorts of other stuff. And then the downstairs got renovated into a large multidiscipline, multi-specialty ambulatory surgery center. And then ultimately, so fast forward, <laughs> there was an anesthesia company, the ambulatory surgery center, the practice that had 11 providers, uh, an imaging center, physical therapy, massage therapy, chiropractors, um, and then both psychologists and social workers. And then I ultimately sold the building to a REIT, sold uh, the other companies to both private equity and to publicly traded companies. And here we are. That's an awesome story. All because I had the nerve to basically leave my academic job. So that is actually a really good story. And it kind of touches on a topic that we were talking about before the show started. We were talking about sort of the concept of economics and incentives and how those work throughout the medical side of business or the business side of medicine. Can you talk about how did you figure out about these sorts of things? How did you ever see that those um, incentives were at play inside the business side of medicine? So when I was at UCSF and a young attending, I got appointed to the finance committee. And so the finance committee for the Department of Anesthesia basically met quarterly to go over the financials for the department. And I got to see 
how much work we did, how revenue was generated, and then ultimately what the expenses were. And came to realize that basically my department, my entity, the pain service, was a cash cow. Okay, we were generating a lot of money for the department, way more than some of the other services, but that ultimately that did not trickle down. And when I went to my chairman and said, hey, we can make even more money, the response was, look, we have to pay the dean's tax, we have to pay all of these expenses, and at the end, we get paid according to the latter at the University of California, San Francisco, based on whether you're an assistant professor level one or you're a professor level one, two, three, whatever it is, if you do more work, you're not gonna get any more money. And I went, what is wrong with this system? Okay, because why would why would I want to do this? And as a result, you look around and you see these guys who run off to their lab or they run off to do whatever else with their non-clinical time instead of putting that effort into better patient care, growing the referral base, growing whatever you're doing because there was no monetary incentive. And then even when I went to work uh, for the group, the anesthesia group, I went to them and said, I'm making you guys a lot of money. I want to be a partner and I want to change the way in which we run pain. And I really want to build this out. And their response was, we're never going to make you a partner because you don't take NyQuil and anesthesiologists take NyQuil. And I said, but you don't generate nearly as much money as I do. Okay. And the thing is, is that they could not read a financial statement. And when I asked them for my numbers and I was like, okay, I saw this number of patients. I generated this amount of revenue. All right. This is what my overhead is. And this is what I take home. Right. There's a huge disconnect. You guys are getting all of this money. So why don't I get to participate in it? And they were like, because you don't take all. And I said, okay, <laughs> that if you're not willing to change the way I get to practice and you're not willing to change the amount of money I get, then I'm going to go do something where I can. And then back to the hospital story, I understood from, again, knowing my numbers, right? and I can't stress to you enough how much really understanding how, how you generate revenue, how much money are you bringing in to this entity? Doesn't matter whether it's an academic department, whether it's a corporate department or it's your own private practice, you know, how much am I getting paid for the work that I'm doing, right? And then how much does, what are the expenses? I mean, and so with the hospital, I realized that by doing procedures at their place, the facility fee that they get is 2X at least what my professional fee is. So one of the things that people don't really think about is the fact that when you provide a medical service, you know, particularly if it's procedure-based, there's a, a professional fee and there's a technical component. And so if, you know, you have to essentially split that with somebody, meaning the entity, they're getting the lion's share relative to you. And so by understanding that, I was able to go to the hospital and say, hey, guys, I know how much you're getting off of my work 
And that's why you should want to form a joint venture with me. And when they said, no, we don't have to, because in their mind, they thought they would find another idiot who would be more than happy to just get the profi and not fight with them. All right. I said, I'll just go do it by myself. And indeed, within a year, year and a half, their program folded. And that was the end of it. I love this story. And there's a couple points I want to pull from it. One is I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, your strategy here, you know, part of it was you wanted your fair share, right? But that didn't, and and so you went and started your own practice, but that didn't necessarily reduce or that didn't necessarily increase the cost to your customer, to your patient, right? Likely their cost went down because you did things more efficiently than the hospital could have. So that's one point. And then secondly is by understanding these different numbers, by understanding revenue, expenses, and then how much of that should come to you as a physician, you had a great and strong bargaining position with the hospital, with your employer at UCSF. And both of these things allowed you to make decisions that were best for you and your family. And I, I think that's a good point for physicians to make. We talked a little about, bit about this before the podcast started is these business principles will help you regardless if you go into private practice or if you're just employed, it'll give you bargaining power and power to know, okay, am I getting used and abused because of, you know, because even though I'm making more money for the, them than they are making for themselves, I'm younger in the practice or, or for whatever reason, right? By knowing the numbers, you right. have bargaining power. So can we, uh, we'd like to dive into that now and go into some of these business terms because these business terms, a lot of medical students have never taken an accounting class or a finance class. So we'd like to dive into some of those and we can talk about how they apply to these different circumstances. So first off, what is revenue? What is the technical definition? What does revenue mean? I don't think I'm going to give you the technical definition. I'm going to tell you what it means. Revenue is... Yeah, that's better. Revenue is money that you generate, right? So revenue is if I see a patient, I'm going to get paid X amount. If I go to McDonald's and I order a Big Mac you and you pay, what is it, 350 for it? The 350 goes to the revenue, right? It's, it's basically how much money do I generate for doing X, So the point here is revenue means money brought in by the business. It doesn't mean how much money you take home. So when you go to McDonald's and pay $3.50 for the hamburger, the cashier isn't taking $3.50 home. They might be taking $0.03 home after all the expenses are paid. So like... As a physician, your revenue, you charge a hundred bucks for whatever, you know, for a strep throat swab or whatever it is, but the strep test costs some money and yeah. Well, I, I want to come back and say something before we even get to revenue. Okay. I want to talk about charges and collections because this is a, a big deal in the media and it's a, a tremendous misconception among physicians, particularly when you're talking to a potential employer about how to structure a deal, how to structure a contract. In medicine, you can charge whatever you want. If the entity that you are going to work for takes insurance, okay, Each insurance company has its own contractuals, meaning if you are, you know, 
a hospital, if you're an academic department, if you are, you know, a corporate employer, even if you're a private practice and you're going to be an employed physician or you're going to start your own, you are going to go to, let's say, Blue Cross and say, I want a contract. Okay. Blue Cross negotiates the contract and Blue Cross is going to pay you for X visit a certain amount of money. Okay. It doesn't matter what you charge them. They're only going to pay you what your contract says. Okay. So when you see in the news that, you know, a, a procedure is being billed at $40,000, the actual amount that was paid may only be 15, right? So charges, when somebody talks to you about charges, understand that that is a funny money number. The only thing that you really should be interested in is how much is collected because revenue, to come back to revenue, the money that you get in revenue, how much you collect is really what is collected, not what is charged. Right? And the reason that's important is if you go to McDonald's, 350 is 350 for that Big Mac. On the other hand, anybody who's ever had to go, let's say, buy a car, right? Or anything else that you have to negotiate the price on, right? There's the sticker price, and then there's the actual price you pay, okay? Charges are the sticker price, the wishful thinking, I hope I get this. And then the collections are the actual amount I pay. The money that goes in the bank, which is what revenue is, is the collections, not the charges. It's amazing how everything's a little bit more complicated when it comes to insurance companies. Well, and the reason that's so important is that a lot of times people think revenue is, they, they see that huge charge number and they think that's what the employer is actually getting. And they don't understand that when you negotiate your contract with somebody, it's really, they're really looking at what are they going to get in the bank? And that's really only what they collect. Are those numbers publicly available? Or how, how would you access, like, say I was working um, at a hospital system and I wanted to figure out what I was worth to the hospital. How would I go about getting that data to find that out? You can, any uh, billing department can run a report on your multiple reports. There are, like, on your productivity, okay, which is a whole, like, we can have this as a whole other conversation about if I go to get a job, what, what do I, how do I, what do I ask them for in that interview? So one of the questions that you really want to ask is, can I see the financials for other members of the department beforehand? I mean, because transparency is the key to this whole thing, right? And so people, good employers will give you that data. They, they may, you know, black out the names of the people so you don't know whose productivity is what, but they should be willing to share what an average starting doc generates and in, in revenue. Yeah, and I love that the concept of transparency, how important that is for an economic system like ours to work in a way that maximizes benefits for everybody. Because that's one of my complaints about the insurance system sort of it's very, very complicated and there's not a lot of transparency in there. 
And it's very analogous to, like you said, the car dealership. It has those same two problems. It's not a very transparent system, and there's a lot of complexity, which just means they can move the pieces around, and you you know you don't really know what's going on sometimes. But that's not really true, Chandler. It, that's really born out of the fact that people don't understand it. So most doctors, most ho- like most employers, who's ever going to right. You generate a fee schedule. That fee schedule is usually two to two to three times Medicare, okay? Because depending on your insurer, depending on where you live in the country, the insurer may pay 150% of Medicare, 200% of Medicare, okay? And so the reason it seems to you that it's not transparent mm-hmm. is because the fee schedule has nothing to do, right? And the insurance companies each negotiate with you. Okay. So, you know, you may get, depending on where you live, depending on how much competition, you may end up with a better deal with one insurance company than another. One may pay you, you know, 90% of Medicare and one may pay you 120% of Medicare. You know, if you're a pediatric ophthalmologist and you're the only guy in, you know, a 500 mile radius and that they need you on their panel, they're going to pay you more, right? That's, I, you know, not, not to be obnoxious, but that's not really complex. That's how business, right? That's how businesses run. I mean, I, I need you more. Or I want you more, right? If I need, the, if my car broke down and I need a car today, I'm going to pay you more than if I have six months to wait to negotiate, right? So it's, it's not really that difficult once you understand how to play the game. Yeah. And so let me make sure I'm, I'm uh, hearing you correctly. So the Medicare price is kind of like a standard basically, and there's going to be some deviation from that Medicare standard, but it's going to be a lot less of a deviation than the, the price the hospital's charging. So if you look at what the hospital's actually receiving in money from the insurance company, that's going to follow the Medicare standard fairly closely. But if you look at what they're charging, it's going to be all over the place. Correct. The other thing is that you just need to know as an aside, the Medicare fee schedule is public. You can look up the Medicare fee schedule and know exactly. So if the average person wanted to know, okay, how much can I assume I'm going to collect, right? All you have to do is go to the Medicare fee schedule and plug in, you know, your CPT codes. Thanks for all this. It's good to know the details and to know some of the nuance that there is. Um, we want to keep diving into some of these these terms, these definitions and terms. So revenue is money that comes in. What are expenses? So expenses are things that cost you money that you have to pay for. So you know, there are fixed expenses, things like rent that you have to pay regardless of how many patients that you see. Uh, but it's everything, think about everything in your house, right? So expenses are your rent, your insurance, your phone, your internet service. The, it includes things like the copy machine, the, the ink for the printer, the printer itself, the computers, it includes your personnel costs. If you do a procedure, even something as simple as drawing blood, you need gloves in the room, you need a syringe, you need needles, you need a tourniquet, you need the wipes, you need the alcohol. All of those things are expenses. Anything that you would have to pay for in any way, shape, or form. 
So you mentioned expenses or anything that you have to pay for, and then you mentioned fixed expenses, and these are also called overhead or fixed costs, and these are the things you have to pay regardless. And these kind of things are important, you know, like rent, internet, um, some of these kind of things, but they can also put you in a bind in a situation where you're not bringing in extra money, right? So like when coronavirus happened and people couldn't do elective procedures anymore, they still had their fixed expenses, but they couldn't generate new revenue to cover those fixed expenses. So they had some problems there. So overhead includes both fixed and variable. So fixed expenses are things that you have to pay, whether you see no patients, whether you see one patient, or whether you have an over-the-top busy practice and you're seeing a gazillion patients, you have to pay the same amount of expense. That's what a fixed expense is. Rent is a great example. Variable expenses are things that scale based on the volume. So to come back to the you know example of, let's say, doing a procedure in your office or doing phlebotomy. The, number, the amount of supplies you need if you have 10 patients is very different than the amount of supplies you need if you have 100 patients. And that's what a variable expense is. So during COVID, to your point, yes, you could minimize your variable expenses, but your fixed expenses remain. Yeah, and salary is one of those things that's kind of... Uh... I guess, a fixed expense if you're a physician. And so a lot of times it won't scale up with volume like you might hope for it to do to incentivize you working harder and seeing more patients or having more patients that return. In a lot of hospitals and academic centers, are, is there any sort of incentive for doing better work or doing more work or anything like that? Or are salaries pretty much fixed? So... I'm going to change your word better Mm -hmm. because better really implies to me quality of care. Yes. Right. Incentive to do more work. Yes. I think that most of the academic, there are still exceptions, but most of the academic centers and pretty much every corporate job, matter of fact, pretty much most jobs in general um, have in incentive component. As a matter of fact, I would tell you in today's day and age, you should not sign a contract with anybody that does not have an incentive component. Um, and, and you have to understand that that's true both from the physician employee perspective, but also from the physician employer perspective, because ultimately, you know, as the employer, you want the physician to have a dog in the fight, meaning incentivized to do more work, right? But on the other hand, as the employee, you also want that because if I'm going to step up and see that extra patient on Friday at 4.30, I want to know that there is something in it for me. The The thing about the, this, though, is you need to understand how much volume is available in this job, right? How much revenue is sort of reasonable to expect that I'm going to generate? I heard about this practice that had a group of, you know, eight to 10 physicians and the way they were structured is they had a base level of pay and then anything that they earned above that amount would be distributed equally as a bonus to all partners. And so there wasn't that incentive to go above and beyond and to 
see more patients in fewer hours. Um, and the thought was, originally the thought was, well, then people won't snag and deal with the, the easy, low-hanging fruit. And um, because the idea was, well, if we're incentivized to produce a lot, then one partner might be a little selfish and just snag all the strep throats that are easy and quick and uh, bring in money. But then they'll ignore the person with hypertension and chronic kidney disease and multiple comorbidities that take more time but don't bring in as much revenue. Um, but eventually they turned around and went to a more um, a production-based model, is that what you call it, where how much they brought in, that's how much they, they earned. And uh, I think they've had more success that way. And, it, and it's just easier too because if one patient doesn't want to work as much because they value family time more um, – then they can make that decision without affecting everybody else on on the team. Well, I think a couple of things, you know, first of all, I've always had a production based system in my own practice, because to your point, there's always somebody who wants to work harder. There's always somebody who wants to leave uh, earlier in the day or take more vacation time. And when you split it evenly, people, there's always somebody who's mad. The guy who works harder is mad because he feels like he's working harder than everybody else. The person who wants to leave early, you know, feels bad because they're not as productive. Bottom line, and and nobody's allowing them to because it's split evenly, right? I think at the end of the day, first of all, it really depends when you join a group on the dynamic of the group and understanding the group, okay? Because if you have processes in place for how referrals are distributed to prevent the cherry picking of the patients, right, and that is really where who's ever managing the group comes in, then some of those concerns are minimized. The other thing is, is that if you really understand billing, the guy who did the strep swab and saw that patient in three minutes, right, did not was not able to bill for the same level of service and get paid the same amount as the person who took care of patients with the multiple comorbidities and build a higher level of service. So, you know, I, it, it comes back to, do I want to sell more of the dollar products and have to sell them to a hundred people, or do I want to sell one $100 product to one person? And this is where really understanding how much work do I have to do to get paid? How much money comes into play? Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about business compared to medicine sometimes is at some level, human beings invented business. Like there was not like laws of physics or anything like the, what drives biology and medicine. So it's almost a little bit more simple because it's something that we made for ourselves, you know, to use. And I'm just so amazed Every time we talk to somebody, you know, we talk about some specific things that I, you know, I'd never heard of, like the um, fee schedule through Medicare and things like that. But really at the root level, all of these concepts just come down to look at the math and see what's happening and then decide for yourself whatever you want. You know, that's exactly it. It's just so amazing that that is the, that's just such a recurring theme every single episode that we have. And, and I'm glad that it's that way. Instead of, oh, this is so complicated, you'll have no hope of understanding this or anything like that. I think the problem is this. 
people and and actually I, I think Johnny sent this to me um, in an email or in a comment, but at the end of the day, people expect that they are, learn all of this stuff, right? And one of the problems is when you're a medical student, I know the, from my own experience, right? You think I'm going to learn all this stuff and I'm done, right? Once I take my boards, I'm done. Once I get to this point, I'm done. Okay. If you look around all of the attendings who are doing, you know, I don't know if you guys have um, started to see like robotics, right? So robotic surgery, if you're in a room with an attending who's 45 or older, they never saw robotics as a medical student. It didn't exist. Okay. And chances are they didn't even learn it in residency because it was brand new. Okay. So, Somehow or another, they managed to learn it, right? Just like that little um, microbiology, you know, book of the antibiotics that they give out, right? It changes every year. I no longer remember, like, which of the hundred versions of new drugs there are because you look it up in the book because there's always a new drug. So the expectation is that you will continue to learn. You have to continue to learn, otherwise you get left behind, Right. So why it is that somehow or another we can't seem to figure out how to apply that to understanding the business side of this just blows my mind. Yep. And it's very consequential because we, we think at this podcast that it is driving some of the burnout that we're seeing at a lot of uh, just the financial disincentives and people not understanding that kind of stuff. And like we were talking about earlier, too, I, I thought about this. I was going to bring it up. If there's a really huge disconnect between what you're bringing into the hospital and what you're getting paid, it doesn't matter if the number that you're getting paid is still really high. You know, at some level, we're human beings. And when you see that disconnect between the two, that is kind of not, it's not very motivating. And that's something the general public sometimes I don't think understands. And this is complicated because I know when you look at a physician's salary, you know, you're like, oh, $200,000. That seems like so much. How can you be, be disappointed with that? But if you're bringing in $2 million into the hospital, there's that huge disconnect and you just feel undervalued. Well, especially if you think that it, you are good, that they're actually collecting that $2 million. Yeah. Okay. If it turns out, because I see this all the time in people that I talk to, the charges are $2 million. The actual collections all right, maybe only 800, all right? The overhead fixed and variable is probably at least 50%, okay? So maybe they're actually bringing in, maybe you actually contribute, right? Yeah. 350, 400 to their bottom line. They're paying you 200, 250, but, they're, but remember, they're paying you that, and they have to pay your your payroll and your benefits, which basically comes to at least fifteen percent of the two hundred, right? So by the time they you get done with all of the other stuff, maybe they're making fifty seventy five thousand dollar profit on you, but the person the people who are all all I could not agree with you more that this concept of burnout, most of them are burnt out because they're doing the woe is me. I'm working so hard and I'm making nothing for it. They have no clue what they're actually generating. Yeah. And that's, that's sad if it's in that situation where you actually 
are getting paid reasonably fifty, seventy thousand dollars a year to go pay for administrative stuff. That seems pretty fair to me. And it's it's just such a travesty of someone sitting there thinking I'm undervalued, I'm not getting treated fairly. But they actually are. They just don't understand that they are getting treated fairly. Well, but it's it's even worse than that because mm-hmm. they also don't understand, okay if I actually put a little bit of effort into my documentation and into my coding, right, then I could actually generate more in collections that the difference between this level code and that level code is the extra two seconds that it takes you to do something, right? That, you know, I'll give you an example. I've had a couple of new docs that came straight out of fellowship where I've had the same conversation. They they show up and they're, so gung ho, and they're like, I want to do this new procedure, and we need to buy this piece of equipment. And I'll say to them, We're not doing that because, yes, you did it in, re- in fellowship and residency, and it was the coolest thing ever. However, let me tell you, there's no code that gets paid for that, right? It's totally like a academic thing, right? Or, you know, yes, you can do it, but the piece of equipment, right? Costs a hundred thousand dollars. And this is what's involved in this. And so basically at the end of the day, it's going to cost us $500 for the pleasure of you doing this procedure on this person. If you're, if you feel so strongly that we need that for you to do this procedure on this person, then I'm more than happy for you to write a check for the $500 every time you do it. And then I'm happy for us to do it. We won't make any money, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to electively lose money for the privilege of you doing this. It comes back to, should I give drug A or should I give drug B? If they both have the same outcome, why would I, why would I purposely lose money just to give you drug B? We were talking about that earlier with uh, Chandler went to go fill up his albuterol and they gave him levalbuterol. And it cost them like three times as much or something like that. Yeah, they told me the price and I was like, whoa, something is seriously wrong here. And then, you know, and that's that's one of the benefits of going to medical school. And it makes you sad that the general public sometimes doesn't have that knowledge. Because, I mean, if I wouldn't have gone, you know, we just learned about it. And we just learned the, the names for the um, generic version and stuff like that. So I, you know, pretty quickly knew what was going on. But my brother, who's not in medical school, probably would have just paid the $250 or whatever and then, you know, not really understood that that was completely avoidable. So to kind of go back to some more terms and definitions, if it's all right, we talked about revenue, how much money you bring in. We talked about expenses. And then third, probably one of the biggest terms is profit. And we've touched on profit already, but what is profit and what does it have to do with revenue and expenses? So profit is basically how much you actually make and get to keep. So basically, I have some amount of money that I generate. That's revenue. Then there is some amount of money that it costs me to have generated that revenue. That's what your expenses are. Revenue minus expenses equals profit, which is what actually I get to take home. So that's perfect. And um, to follow up on that, there are different definitions of profit. And I don't think now is the time to really go into the different ones, but they have to do with, you know, you have gross profit then you have taxes and you have net profit. Um, 
But I did want to dive into some of these other terms, such as receivables. I think this is another one that's important to know, even if you're not a business owner, um, if you're an employee, I think it's important to know what receivables are. Do you have control over your receivables? And, and how does that affect your, your pay as a physician? So can you go ahead and talk a little bit about that? So medicine is kind of interesting because you provide a service and then you get paid frequently sometime down the line. So understand that if you are in a business, uh, in a practice that is cash pay only, when you render the service, the patient pays you. You don't have receivables because you've already received the money. If you uh, take insurance, then everybody knows, you know, you may have a copay or you may have coinsurance. That's the money that we know that you need to collect up front at the time of the visit. Okay. But then the, the business, hospital, practice, whatever it is, is going to bill the insurance company. So you drop the charge. Right? And, and I can come back and explain that in a second. The bill goes off to the insurance company, and then they are supposed to pay it within 50 to 30 days. Okay? It depends on whether it's paid electronically, depends on your state, but usually you should be paid the receivables within 30 days. Okay? If there is something wrong with the way in which the bill was submitted or the service is not going to be paid, it was denied, or they need more information, it can be longer than 30 days, okay? You want to collect 90% of your money within the first 90 days because if you haven't collected the receivables by 90 days, your chance of actually getting that money goes way, way down, right? As an employed physician, you have relatively little control over how long it takes to collect that money. But there are some things that you can do, and those things are making sure that your documentation is complete, okay? That your code that you choose matches your documentation, which is why it's so incredibly important that everybody learns how to code for whatever services they're going to provide. And, and I say that as an aside, because in medical school and residency, there's not a lot of attention paid to that, and yet it is going to be your lifeline once you get out. Then you also want to make sure that the procedure or the visit or whatever you have performed meets the medical necessity guidelines, because things that get denied by the insurance company then have to be come back to you. You have to resubmit the documentation. You have to get on a peer-to-peer -peer review with the insurance company. It takes time and money to fight the claim, and your money sits in that accounts receivable bucket that much longer. So everything you can do on the front end to learn the coding, learn what's medically necessary, improve your documentation okay, is going to help decrease the amount of time that your money sits in the accounts receivable bucket and gets into your pocket faster. So where can people go, um, med students, attendings, the whole range, where can people go to learn about how these systems work and how to chart things appropriately? So there are a number of resources that I can send you a link for. 
um, in terms of coding. The coding nowadays for evaluation and management codes, really very easy because they've just got changed by CMS. So you either code by total time spent with somebody, total time in 24 hours. So it's not only face-to-face time with somebody, but also time reviewing charts, time that you talk to another physician. Um, And the other way that you can code is based on medical decision-making. So I will send you a link for that that you can put in in the bottom of your podcast. Um, The easiest way um, in your spare time, make a trip to the billing department in whatever hospital you are and have a 15-minute conversation a couple of times with the billers and coders. They will, I mean, yes, you can read all sorts of books. You can look at the links. I promise you they will teach you everything you need to know in a, a relatively short amount of time if you do that. And then the other thing is, as a resident, certainly, you know, is to talk to the attendings about how, how did they choose this code or that code? You know, I think one of the problems as a medical student or a resident, doctors in general, is that we're so pressured for time that we really kind of give the note a lick and a promise sometimes. And it comes back to haunt you. It's one of these things where do it right the first time. It will save you time in the long run. Yeah, this is semi-related, but tangential, I guess. Whenever people are doing um, research, um, like looking at hospital data, do they use the hospital codes that they put in for billing to determine what people came in for and what they got treated for? So they'll use the ICD-10s. Those are the diagnosis codes, right? So when you submit a bill, you have to have a diagnosis code. And you have to have a CPT code, which is for the actual service that you provide. Okay. One of the things that, you know, and this is the nuance, right? You have to make sure that the ICD-10 matches the CPT code. Okay. And what do I mean by that? So let's say that you are an orthopedist. Okay. And you diagnose somebody with a rotator cuff repair, a rotator cuff tear. Right. If your CPT code is for, let's say, an elbow surgery, okay, they're going to deny it because this diagnosis didn't match what you're saying that, that you performed. Or, for, or sometimes with medical necessity, right? You say that the person is obese as your diagnosis, but there are different levels within ICD-10 of obese versus morbidly obese versus, you know. And so if you order them, let's say, um, a sleep apnea test for their morbid obesity, but their BMI is 29, then you're probably going to get denied. So it's under, it's actually understanding the marriage of those two things, right? But, but think about it this way. In the end, most physicians, and I know if you're a medical student who's listening to this or, you know, that you're going, oh my God, how the hell am I ever going to learn all this, right? In the end, when you become an attending in whatever specialty you choose, 
I promise you that there will be your top 10, maybe your top 15 CPT codes. So you're going to bill evaluation and management because you're going to see new patients. You're going to see follow-ups. That's what an E&M code is, right? There, there are levels of new patient visits and there are levels of follow-up visits. You're going to bill those. And then you're going to bill, if you are somebody who does procedures or other stuff, you're going to have CPT, CPT codes for that. But like if you're an orthopod, you're probably not doing every single joint or you're certainly not doing an appendectomy. So you don't need to know every single code. You only need to know the 15 that you do. Similarly, you're probably only going to see 20 ICD-10 diagnoses, right? You're not going, yes, you will see the occasional red herring and you can look that up in a book all right. Just the same way you look everything else up in a book when you don't know it. All right. Because there's no way in medical school that you can learn every single fact of every single disease that there ever was known to man. Right. Similarly, you learn the key facts that you use all the time. And in this case, you learn the key ICD 10s you use all the time. And then between 10 of these and 10 of these, you're done. Does that make sense? <laughs> That does, and that is certainly reassuring, because um, like you said, we're, we're at the medical school level. It can get really overwhelming sometimes, and that really, that also helps tie in, like when we're doing our uh, mock interviews or, or things like that, the way they make us fill out the chart, that actually makes a lot more sense with what you're saying based on how we organize it, you know, with the diagnosis and then the treatment. It kind of makes sense that there's two separate categories for that. And the diagnosis, so for each diagnosis, there should be a treatment. And because who's ever coding that is looking to see that those two things match. Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. So to ask a couple more terms and definitions, and we'll wrap up here in the next couple minutes, but uh, I feel like this one's important, especially for physicians who are going to be employed. What, so we talked about accounts receivables and that, you know, that's the money that will come in eventually. Um, that's tied to your productivity, you know, how much patients you see, how much you actually produce, and that'll trickle down after expenses are paid into your end salary. Sometimes when physicians negotiate their contract, they have what's called an income guarantee. What is an income guarantee and why would that be something that you would want or not want? Well, the issue is an income guarantee is the amount that I'm going to get paid. It's a salary. It's how much am I going to get every month one way or the other, whether I see one patient or I see 100 patients or I see 1,000 patients. The reason that you would want that, especially when you first start out, is there's a ramp-up period. Okay? When you start a new job, even if you're an experienced stock, okay, if you're a new you don't already have a practice of patients. The first day, every patient you see is a new patient, right? So there's going to be a limit to how many of those you, you can see in a day. And it's going to take them time to get you referrals and basically grow that practice. So you don't want to be on the hook where you don't have some amount of guaranteed salary and you are just dependent on how much you produce. The other thing, as we've alluded to, you see the patient today, but you may not get paid for 30, 60, 90 days, okay? 
So for most of us, we need to know that we're going to get a paycheck. If we go to work on day one, we need to know that within two weeks to a month, depending on whether you're paid bi-weekly or monthly, that you're going to get a paycheck. Well, you may or may not be collecting anything or enough to be paid in income or a salary in those first three months. So by having an income guarantee, you essentially have a base. You you know that you're going to get some amount of money. Now, to come back to the conversation we were having, you also want to know that once you exceed that income guarantee, that there is the potential, if you keep working harder and harder, that you're going to be rewarded for that. And that's where that incentive comes in. I think it also helps to mitigate risk for events like COVID where you don't see as many patients because people are scared to come into the clinic so they so they don't come for their normal well checkups or elective procedures are shut down so you don't get you don't you no longer generate revenue for doing gallbladder removals or things of that nature it helps to protect the the physician as an employee so that they still have income during those times of of less productivity and hopefully that doesn't happen you know hopefully we're busy our whole lives well, let me offer you a different version because COVID indeed is, you know, probably the one-off. But how about you want to actually go on vacation, right? And so if you don't have an income guarantee, then if I go on vacation and I produce less this month, then I have less revenue that's being generated and therefore I would have less profit and less money that would come into my bank account, So by having a guarantee, I know that I'm going to get the same amount regardless of whether I go on vacation or not. Well, thanks. Thanks a bunch for those definitions. Those are super helpful. Um, A couple other last questions, and Chandler might have some as well, but I'm curious, once you started to engage in the business side of medicine, once you started to understand revenues, expenses, profits, accounts receivables, all these things, do you feel like you provided better or worse patient care? Uh, Much better. And I'll tell you why. A couple of reasons. First of all, I was able to understand what the costs were to the patient and also understand how to maximize the amount of time and effort I was putting in. And as a result, that I could deliver better care. The other thing, and you know, I, at the beginning of this, I told you about all of the different businesses. One of the things I realized was I was sending people to a physical therapist uh, as a separate entity. Okay, when I referred them to the physical therapist, I had no control over the quality of care that they got at the physical therapist. I had no control when I sent them to the imaging center how nice they were to my patient, the level of service that they got. By bringing all of these services together, I actually made patients have a much better experience by controlling the quality of service that they got. And the other thing is that by having these interrelated services, you can actually improve patient outcomes, okay? And make patients feel 
more engaged. And as a result, they tend to be more compliant. So there are multiple ways in which we were able to deliver much improved patient care. And then that in turn ultimately allowed me to go and negotiate for better rates with the insurance companies because I was saving them money. For example, we did workman's compensation as a pain management group. And we had a 98% return to work rate. That's incredible. But that was because we started on day one with a multimodality approach for how do we help you manage this to get you back to functioning? Because the whole goal of pain management, but the whole goal of disease management period is to improve the quality of people's lives. So what's the normal rate of returning to work for people on workman's comp? Do you know? It depends on where you live, but in a lot of practices or a lot of places, it's about 75% or less. Jeez. I was going to say, that's really the reverse side of the story Um, because we've kind of covered the gamut. We've kind of talked about some downsides of these like bigger organizations and how sometimes there can be a mismatch in incentive. But on the other side of that, whenever you have these big organizations like this, you're allowed to do a lot of really good things for patients. And you see a lot of positive outcomes being able to integrate everything in one place. Um, Yeah, I just think that's an important point because I feel like personally, I see a lot of people kind of go on either one side. You know, they hate the big hospitals or, you know, they hate the person that's out on their own doing their own little thing. But there's got to be some kind of balance because they both have positives and negatives. Well, I think the issue is regardless of which road you choose, understand that if you are an active participant in it, you can improve your own experience and the experience of your patients. And if you can't be an active participant in it, then you need to change the venue. So if you're in you know, a corporate practice and you can't get the hospital administration to change, then you can go out and start your own private practice like I did, or you can find a different corporate job. But when you look for a job, it is all about assessing the opportunity. And the opportunity is really about the fit. It's not, yes, sure, it's about how much money are they going to pay me and what are the benefits and is there a sign-on bonus and, you know, is there loan forgiveness and all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, it really is, what's the culture? Is it a fit? Are we all interested in rowing in the same direction? Okay. And will I have a voice? Because those are really the things that are going to help you stay in that position long before, you know, the the money issue comes in. You know, money is great, but if you're miserable every day and you feel like you're being taken advantage and you have no voice, you're not going to stay. I think that might be the best possible place we can end it. That was a great ending. Uh, Dr. Weitz, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. Where can people go to learn more about your work and connect with you? Um, The easiest way, so a couple of things, um, and you guys, I I think, I don't know that Chandler did, you should definitely join my Facebook group, the Private Medical Practice Academy. It is not only for people who want to go into private practice, it is really about exactly this. How do I understand how this whole thing works? Obviously, my podcast, which you've already found, the Private Medical Practice Academy, And then my website, thepracticebuildingmd.com, 
And I would tell you that you should offer people that to download the uh, link for how to negotiate contracts. How do you how do you negotiate anything? And then I'll also um, send you a link separately from this. You can post it if you want, but if not, you guys may find it just beneficial. I have uh, a link for key terms for negotiating contracts with insurance companies, just so that when you hear these things, you're not sitting there going, what the heck are they talking about? Well, thanks for those links. We'll stick them in the show notes. And if you're listening, you really should check out Dr. White's podcast. Um, Every podcast is concise, but actionable. It's a really good listen for anybody thinking about starting a practice.